You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to ABA section of antitrust law. This is Anant Rout, the co-chair of the Legislation Committee, and I'm the host for today's podcast. Joining me now, I have Richard Parker and Melanie Aiken. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Um, so I'm Melanie Aiken. I'm a partner at Bennett Jones, which is actually a Canadian law firm. Uh, I have an office in D.C. I actually am the office in D.C., purely a Canadian lawyer, and uh, used to run the Canadian agency up in Ottawa uh, up until about six years ago. I'm Richard Parker. I've been a partner at O'Melveny & Myers for many years. I was at the Federal Trade Commission uh, for four years, was director of the Bureau of Competition, and I am now a partner in the antitrust group at the Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher firm in Washington. And I'm Anant Rout. I have spent time on Capitol Hill as counsel to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees. I also was previously in the Federal Trade Commission's Mergers 3 shop, as well as in the DOJ's Antitrust Division as counsel to the AAG. And today's topic is going to be specifically legislation and the role of Congress, but maybe more generally, now that we have our uh, Canadian enforcer friend here, uh, what should be the role of governments in antitrust law? So let me just kick it off. We have, I have a few questions in mind, but we can just make this an open-ended discussion. But maybe we can start by saying, should Congress have merger hearings ever? I think that it's always helpful to have merger hearings. I think it's helpful in particularly if they look at retrospectives. I think the FTC does a nice job on, uh, on retrospectives, and I think in terms of determining whether a merger ended up being pro or anti-competitive or whether a fix actually worked, I think that's very worthwhile. And I think that's a proper subject for congressional inquiry. I wonder, there's a lot of important issues in the world, so I wouldn't do this every year, but I think from time to time to have that type of hearing is a good idea. Yes, sir. Well, in Canada, we wouldn't have an analog really for that. Certainly on the retrospectives, we do have our agency um, has been quite active in doing ex post studies of the effectiveness of remedies or lack thereof and the various investigations and sort of did they play out the way they thought they were going to play out, very similar to what the FTC has recently published in the last couple of years. We don't have a legislative kind of equivalent to that. The Commissioner of Competition, who runs the Canadian agency, does report to Parliament through the minister, uh, was then at my time called the Minister of Industry. So there is some opportunity for debate, but it doesn't seem to occupy quite the breadth of attention that you folks have here in the U.S., how about this for a topic? Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of controversy about the Time Warner matter mm. and about Macon Delrahim's insistence on a structural rather than a, a behavioral fix. There are a million vertical mergers. I don't mean that literally, but there's a lot of vertical mergers out there that have been fixed with behavioral remedies. I wonder if a congressional hearing on whether those have worked might be something that would be informative to the public and to the enforcers as well. You know, it's an interesting question. I want to start by adding one thing to the first question, which is I think my thoughts have shifted a bit having been on the Hill versus when I was on the enforcement side. When I was on the enforcement side, you know, I realized that there are three big roles for Congress. There's the the writing of the legislation, there's the oversight, and then there are also these types of uh, hearings 
And I thought, you know, why would Congress get involved in a merger hearing? They have no investigative power. But then I did realize that there is some value, given how basically secretive the process is for the general public, that it is the one opportunity for the general public to weigh in. And so what you're suggesting would fall squarely within the oversight role of Congress. But it is hard sometimes to get Congress to look at antitrust issues other than mergers. And I don't know why that is. I think Congress has a role. The FTC, with its Section 6 authority, has tremendous ability to do, you know, retrospective analyses. Do you think that there needs to be more of an oversight role from Congress or there needs to be more funding and providing of staffing to the agencies to do that kind of analysis? The agencies, I think we're in a very important era in antitrust potentially because I've never heard it more politicized with people on the left, the progressives, saying that antitrust policy has failed. And in particular, the last administration, which in my opinion was the toughest antitrust enforcement ever, and I've been doing this for a lot of years, was inadequate. And I know Professor John Baker at American is coming out with a book on this. And I think that's a very important perspective. My opinion is is that the antitrust enforcers are doing a good job, uh, and I think we've got a very good group in there today. They're not my party, but I think they've got a very talented group. I just don't see the big issue, but there is an issue out there because the Elizabeth Warrens and others of the world think there is, and I think that's worth looking at. Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, again, as an outsider, just commenting on it, to the extent there's public interest around these issues, first of all, we're not used to being terribly relevant. So I think it's good for antitrust folks, enforcement officials, and also those who practice to recognize that there are very real personal, practical, and yes, political consequences to the work that gets done and the results that are achieved or not achieved. I think there's always a danger when you're in a field like this to be rather isolated and insulated. I do agree that, you know, internal studies are probably going to yield the less politically laden results. I think that's true. But I also think we live in the real world. And I mean, again, others people's knowledge here is better than mine. But certainly, you know, the FTC is funded by Congress. I mean, you've got these are legitimate reviews of actions that are funded by taxpayers. So yes, I think you have to recognize they're going to be politicized because that is the nature of the beast. But I also think it's incredibly important uh, that you get that input because then you know, you're forced to be a little more agile as you try to defend, even if you think what the agencies are doing is right. You're forced to defend it in a more nuanced way that speaks to people. And at the end of the day, we may all live in a little rarefied world, but most of the world doesn't. And that's not who pays the salaries of the folks who are doing the work. We've segued into an interesting point, which is this rise of kind of a populist antitrust rhetoric on the left in the United States. And speaking as someone who was part of the previous administration and did think we did a good job, I will still take the side of the progressives here and wonder whether we should have done more, whether we could have done more. And I also think that the current crop of folks is doing a great job. But what you're feeling out there is people are feeling powerless and they're feeling angry. They feel like the corporations have a lot of power. They feel like they don't have any. And sometimes that manifests in voting for someone who's going to, you know, burn the whole system down. And sometimes that manifests in just saying that the enforcers need to be enforcing more, even if in our minds, we're following precedent and all the economic analysis that we normally do. You know, I mean, just some of the statistics that people are talking about is that 
income inequality is at a higher level now than it's ever been. You have more markets with more concentration, with more corporate profitability that isn't being chased down in the form of lower prices or higher wages for workers. People are on hold times for long. And I personally think bad customer service can be like a non-price indicator of a lack of competition. People think that DOJ shouldn't have allowed all the airline mergers and, and, they're, and they're frustrated. And, you know, that is what I think a lot of these politicians are responding to. Do you think that they're off base? I do. And I know a lot about airline mergers. Um, and I will tell you right now that fares are at an all-time low. I mean, they are. There's a lot of criticism because capacities they allege is restricted. I don't think it is. I think capacity is high, and I think that fares are at an all-time low. And I do not understand the criticism of the airline mergers at all. I also think that income inequality, I think those are very, very serious issues, but it's hard to put an antitrust solution to that. I have no idea how you do it. You know, I'm a history buff. And you remember all, all those years in the last century when corporate power was balanced by what? By union power and by government power starting in the New Deal. But now the unions aren't what they used to be, and I think a lot of people are looking to antitrust to substitute for that. I think you'd need another statute to do that. I think antitrust is properly viewed narrowly, is focused on markets and being economically based, I think you'd have to have a whole new regime to look at income inequality, labor issues, and frankly, First Amendment issues. I mean, if you look at the Time Warner and other mergers, NBC, Comcast, you really wonder about, and some people wonder about, the concentration of First Amendment power, communication power in one big company. Antitrust can't get at that. And I think that's an example of something where you'd need another regime. Melanie, what's the Canadian perspective on that? Well, I mean, I would just start by saying, I mean, nobody does know more about airline mergers recently than Rich does, um, having uh, participated in the last two most significant ones. Um, and having a little familiarity myself, having tried unsuccessfully to effectively stop the effective merger of United and Air Canada in terms of transborder routes, I know a little bit, know nothing near Rich. And I think, you know, what happens when you've got this kind of disaffection is you see folks, and totally understandably, pointing at the big players and the players that, you know, we all love to hate our airlines. I mean, that's a great place to start. I just think it rather misses the point. You know, we have real issues, but to try to use antitrust to address these issues is to distort antitrust out of what it's really capable of doing in any kind of principled way. You know, I'm not saying those aren't issues to be addressed. I think they are. But wherever you fall on the spectrum, I don't think you want to take that tool because then I think you devalue the tool and you devalue the currency of this tool to do what it's actually designed and capable of doing. So let me push back on that a little bit because um, there is surprising agreement from folks like the Open Markets Institute to Carl Shapiro in his uh, paper he did in May of last year, agreeing that it's almost maybe a three-pronged problem or more that you have concentration issues that maybe antitrust could address. You have First Amendment issues and the influence of money in politics that is a Citizens United issue, and you have a decrease in labor power, which is more of a labor issue. And the funny thing is, 
when you read some of these papers, you hear the antitrust folks say, well, I agree with you. It's not really an antitrust problem. It's definitely a labor and like a, a Citizens United problem. And you talk to the labor folks and they say, well, there's not a whole lot we can do in labor law, but it's definitely an antitrust issue and definitely a Citizens United problem. And I'm sure if you talk to First Amendment folks, they say, well, it's going to be hard to change that with the current Supreme Court, but it's definitely an antitrust problem and a labor problem. And I guess the question is, why can't all three be doing more? You talked about maybe a new statute. Do we need a new statute or do we just need to be able to I think two sources of criticism. One of the areas that has led to a lot of criticism are some of the digital companies. You know, under current antitrust law, it's hard to bring a bundled pricing case. It's hard to bring a predatory pricing case because there's bad case law out there, or at least case law that makes it harder for the enforcement agencies. Do we need to change antitrust law, or do we just need to make it easier for the agencies to bring the types of cases they should be able to bring? I think that a potentially valid criticism on merger enforcement, and hindsight's 2020, so I'm not being critical of any enforcer, all of whom are my friends and colleagues I respect, but I think some of the upstart companies that have been purchased by the bigger ones, maybe they should have stopped those. But my opinion is, is that the potential competition doctrine when properly applied in the right case will work. I mean, I'm, I, I try these cases, and there is a logic to it, and there's a real logic saying they are on the verge of entering this market, they are on the verge of making this market more competitive. I think some compelling cases can be made, and I would hope that the enforcers, when those issues come up, will employ potential competition, because I think, I think it's a triable case. The predatory pricing is very difficult. That would have to be done, in my opinion, by the government because juries do not like to be told. I mean, I've defended these cases. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the position of the other side is that you need to be paying more money. (laughs) That's what they're saying. You're not paying enough. That is not a good case. But in a part three situation with a commission or in a court trial, I think that you could make a predatory pricing case. And there's a very interesting article, I'm sure you know by the person at Yale talking about predatory pricing and some of the effects it's had uh, on some of the big internet companies. I would just add, I think one of the big challenges is actually a resource challenge. And again, I'm speaking more on the merger side, but some of the industries that, you know, the agencies have tried to investigate, so, you know, in that space particularly, are really just incredibly, incredibly resource intensive to even understand. And it's very hard to keep up with these highly innovative companies. And they're doing exactly what they should be doing. They're pumping money into innovation and they're coming up with innovation. So that's good. Nobody's doing anything wrong. But just for the agencies to be able to even understand, let alone by the time they come up with what they might like to achieve by way of a remedy, life has moved on. I mean, if you think about remedies that have been issued in some of the cases, by the time they've actually come to fruition, they're totally irrelevant. It's the sleeves out of the vest of the companies to give it because they don't even do business that way anymore. So I do think resources is a big issue and potentially, and maybe this is a little more to your point, potentially bringing in expertise that's a little broader than the agencies are used to having. So a little bit more on the kind of things like big data, privacy, understanding maybe how that does play into legitimate consumer interest. I mean, because it isn't just price, as you say, it's service, it's privacy, it's a lot of other things that we tend to want to put into buckets. So if we could bring in perhaps slightly more nuanced, broader, different expertise and get the money to do it, 
I don't think you'd find even the most rabid of free capital, uh, you know, players saying that was a bad thing because I think right. you know none of us wants the world to be run by one. But at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, there needs to be a reason to stop a merger, not just that voters don't like it. Maybe even labor economists. You know, I, I, my own personal instinct on the labor front is, and I, I completely concur with what Rich was saying about unions, we've lost that role. And I don't know that, you know, pointing the finger at antitrust and saying, you fix it, is really much of a cure. Neither of our jurisdictions, ours is flirting with it, unfortunately, but neither of our jurisdictions has this broad market study power. Well, I guess the FTC can get charged with looking at gas prices and things, but generally speaking, we don't have to endure what they do in some other countries, which means you paralyze the antitrust agency because the parliament is dealing with some hot potato issue and they're like, oh, we don't have an answer. Send it over to the antitrust authority. And then what happens is all the resources get sucked into trying to fix a problem that isn't really in their bailiwick at all. I think on the uh, labor front, interestingly, and this is all public, we were going to defend the American U.S. Airways by in a lot of ways, but one of the things we were going to say is that the flight attendants and others have been underpaid uh, at both U.S. Airways and American, and this merger is going to put them at the same level at Delta and United, and it's going to help these people. And the government was going to say that's an inefficiency. And that would have been a very interesting trial, but the case settled. But the parties were going to contend that this is good for labor, and they're going to be making more money. And the government contended that management of U.S. Airways was paying the employees too much. Interesting for a Democratic with a capital <laughs> D administration, but that case never got tried. But that was what was going on. Well, you know, labor issues are important also when you look at no poaching um, mm -hmm. cases. And whether that ought to be per se or criminal is a very debatable issue. But one of the ways you would defend that is to look at opportunities for men and women in the marketplace and how they get jobs and what the real effect of no poaching is. And certainly labor economics has a lot to do with that. And we're starting to see more scholarship from economists, Marinescu, Azar, among others, suggesting that labor markets are, that there's actually more market power in labor markets than maybe previously suspected. And I think that's a very valid topic for further consideration at the agencies, if not in Congress. Absolutely. So let me ask you about labor, because this goes to, I'm glad we have started talking about different standards between our jurisdictions, because uh, one of the issues that has arisen as part of this populist antitrust discussion is whether we need to change the consumer welfare standard to a public interest standard. And I think the problem that I've seen at a lot of the antitrust panels is that the way that it's normally debated is you get someone who's very much in favor of the consumer welfare standard debating someone who is very much in favor of the consumer welfare standard and makes the worst possible case for public interest. So let me give you a different scenario. You know, on no poach, you know, that's one set of cases. But let's talk about on the merger side. What you're talking about is an interesting tension if you're dealing with a consumer welfare standard about when do you plead labor harms? Because periodically, the agencies have pled labor harms. They have typically been with you know, hospital mergers or something where you are alleging a monopsony employer effect post-merger that the post-merger entity will have over employees like doctors and nurses. These are skilled labor groups. But you don't see that pled with unskilled labor because it seems as though the general presumption is that unskilled labor can go out into the general unskilled labor pool and therefore there's not enough market power. But if you applied behavioral economics, wouldn't you come to the same conclusion? I mean, 
the reasoning, the rationale for why you would treat skilled labor differently, that they have already invested this much in their career, they're less likely to get up and move. Wouldn't you apply that to someone who's been working at a factory for 15 years, has the hours that they wanted, has a schedule that they want, has a mortgage? Should we be pleading more labor harms with unskilled labor groups in merger cases, or should we be pleading fewer skilled labor harms as a monopsony harm? I think uh, I've been involved in several cases, Todd versus Exxon, which is in the Second Circuit, which is well-known, but there the issues were industry-specific skills, that is, petroleum industry-specific skills, and the plaintiffs were contending that petroleum accountant, period, and it doesn't count. Uh, So that's an interesting debate. My opinion is that it's a factual question, and that in the right case, when somebody has an expertise as a hod carrier or an expertise as an electrician or an expertise in running an auto plant, I don't see why conceptually it wouldn't be any different. And so it's a factual question, not a principal question, but I think that the concept that unskilled labor can go anywhere is something that's a matter of fact, and it ought to be tested by the agencies in the proper case. I think you made an excellent point there. I think it's a really interesting point that you've made and, you know, sort of why there is this different treatment depending on skilled versus non-skilled. I guess I'd have two comments. One is, uh, is a very static assessment to say that you're looking at skilled labor who've made all these investments, et cetera. We tend to try to take a longer term view, right? In terms of, you know, people will not choose to go into an X profession if it is not as remunerative or not the opportunities uh, that there once were. And we've tended to think of ourselves not as engineers as to what people should do and how many people should do it. But that's just one comment. I think the other comment that you were kind of suggesting we were headed to, and I think it's teed up perfectly with this labor issue, is what standard do you have? Mm -hmm. So in Canada, we actually, for good or for bad, have a total surplus standard, which would treat all freed up labor as, frankly, freed up resources and efficiencies that actually count in favor of the merger. So forget having to fix them. They, in fact, will counter anti-competitive effects. And conceivably, they, along with other efficiencies, could justify an anti-competitive merger. Now, I'm not suggesting the U.S. should be looking or is looking or should look there. But I do think it puts a discipline on how you look at labor and the consequences on labor. If you have a monopsony market, per se, and you're analyzing monopsony downstream effects, I think I agree with Rich. I think it's quite fact-specific if you're going to accept that you're looking at this in a limited time frame. I question whether that's necessarily the right way to look at it, but I do think it absolutely should be fact-specific. So if you're looking at a bunch of isolated oil field workers in the, you know, the Western Sedimentary Basin who can't do anything else, well, okay, But probe that and push that, because can they really not? Do their rigs not move south of the border? Can they not engage in other industrial work? So I think you have to be, you have to probe it, but I think the bigger question is whether, in fact, that's the standard that you should be applying. Just elaborating further on that, you have seen the consumer welfare public interest debate. You obviously, Canada has a different standard. Any thoughts on what legislators in America and policymakers should be considering? Everyone wants to improve antitrust enforcement. Um, No one wants to just be tied to something just because that's the way it's always been done. From your perspective, what what else should we be considering? Very much just my own personal perspective, and I would never presume to suggest what the U.S. should do. I think one thing, and this may just be a bit of a traditionalist reaction, but we've tended to try to protect antitrust to be antitrust because that does give it a certain credibility 
when the push does come to shove in terms of when you challenge and when you don't. And what Canada has done, and believe me, I'm not necessarily saying this is the right thing, but they've identified sector-specific regulators, as you have in some cases. So your STB would look at public interest with some input from the antitrust agencies. Your FCC would look at things with input from your antitrust agencies. We similarly have that. We also have one of those foreign investment statutes with a public interest test and even a national security, our own CFIUS now. So we have a few other tools other than antitrust. I suspect you do as well, but it may be that there are sectors that if if it's felt that there are really pressing issues that aren't being addressed, it may be that a sector-specific approach layered upon an antitrust approach might be something to consider. I have been an antitrust lawyer all my career, and the consumer welfare standard does lend itself to industrial organization economics, which does lend itself to disciplined, rigorous thinking. I think that's good. And when you look at the cases in the 60s before the I.O. economics took over, I don't know what these people are talking about, even the Supreme Court, other than the government always wins. I've been down at the FCC, and I'm not criticizing the people down there, but the public interest in, I have no idea. I mean, I guess everything goes, but I don't know what is the principal basis on which you make a public interest determination. And I would hate to see antitrust go off in that direction and maybe more sectoral regulation of specific industries might be a better idea. But I just don't want to set sail on a sea of doubt, as I say, (laughs) where you don't know what the standard is. You have no idea. All right. And with that, it looks as though we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Rich Parker and Melanie Aiken for joining us today and for this uh, incredibly interesting discussion today. Thank you guys so much. Thanks very much. Pleasure Pleasure to participate. Enjoyed it. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? I'm at Gibson Dunn in uh, Washington, R. Parker at GibsonDunn.com. I'm on the web. Just look up Gibson under P for Parker. There I am. <laughs> um, and I'm Melanie Aiken. I'm at Bennett Jones, as I mentioned, a Canadian law firm. Uh, it's a brutally long uh, email, so I'll spare you. But if you look up Bennett Jones and uh, look up A, I'm the first one listed. <laughs> and I'm Anant Route. I think uh, I'll also spare you an email. It's just... Find me on LinkedIn, and that'll probably be the easiest way to get a hold of me. So this concludes another podcast from the ABA section of Antitrust Law. If you like what you heard, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Anant Rout. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.